First Timothy chapter one, beginning at verse 18. <clears throat> Hear the word of the living God. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that by your wisdom and your grace, you have put your word down into script for us to read, translated into our language for us to understand. And we pray now that your spirit would bring it into our hearts and our minds to understand and to believe and to obey. So, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, God, today, would you speak? Living God with a living word, would you speak to us? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I'm, my point today is to do two things. I want to invite you into a war that you are already fighting. And then I want to warn you about the dangers that are present in this war. I want to invite you to a war that you are already fighting. And then I want to warn you about the dangers that are present in this war. Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy. Remember, this is early 60s AD during what would be called Paul's fourth missionary journey. It's not recorded in the book of Acts. So what's happening in 1 Timothy is Paul's writing after the book of Acts. So after his first imprisonment, he is now traveling back around, encouraging, lifting up churches, doing his apostle thing. And now he writes to Timothy, whom he has sent to Ephesus to put down a spiritual rebellion. You might not think it sounds that that's what he's called to do. But if you remember the charge that Paul gave Timothy at, at the very beginning of chapter one and verse three, I charge you uh, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So that what was happening in Ephesus, that there was an upsurge, an upswell of false teachers with false doctrines. And it wasn't leading to a furthering of the plan of God, but it was rather leading to impotent, powerless, spiritual speculations. And there's a connection that you need to see that it's throughout the book of First Timothy, but it's very, very evident in these verses and really all of chapter one, <clears throat> that what you believe, what you believe to be the faith 
As uh, in Jude chapter 3, the, the faith once handed down, Jude verse 3, the faith once handed down to the saints, what you believe must and inevitably comes out in what you do. What you believe inevitably and must come out in what you do. And so when false teaching is welcomed, when it is not confronted, when it is not spoken against, when it is believed, it will rob the spiritual vitality, not only of singular Christians, individual Christians, but it will rob the spiritual vitality. The life will be sucked out of a congregation. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been dealing with a cough. So false teaching, as you might be able to say, false faith <coughs> leads to false living. Coming around back to verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. This, what is this charge? Well, I've mentioned verse 3 where Paul is telling Timothy that he should charge, that false teachers should shut up. That's the Jacob paraphrase. Um, but, but then you have the aim of our charge in verse 5. That, that basically what Timothy is given is an extension of what God began in the Apostle Paul's ministry. That there is a handing down of ministry. So the charge here is, yes, to confront false teaching, but also to promote the true gospel of the living God. The blessed and only sovereign, as Paul talks about. That this charge is a ministerial charge that Paul has been entrusted by the Lord Jesus and now entrusts to Timothy. It is an extension of the Lord Jesus's ministry itself. You can look at the beginning of Acts to see that all that, the, that Jesus began to do and teach the implication is, is that it was continued on in the first century church. And for us, we could see that it was continued on through the warts and through the confusion and through the, the smoke and the bells and everything else that's happened in church history. It not only continued in the first century, it continued in the second, and the third and the fourth, all the way down to now in the 21st century. That the ministry of our Lord Jesus continues through the spirit of the Lord Jesus amongst the people of the Lord Jesus on mission for the Lord Jesus that we have received a similar charge. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Now, Timothy is not literally Paul's biological son, but he is one that Paul has brought up in the faith, whether he came to faith under Paul's tutelage or not. He was trained and, and we would say today he was discipled, equipped by Paul for the work of ministry. And he references this for us. It may seem kind of a strange reference. I entrust you in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare. The prophecies here are those that happened at what might be called Timothy's ordination. Throughout the pastoral epistles, throughout 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul references this moment in Timothy's 
ministry where a group of elders or presbyters, they came around him, they laid hands on him, and they spoke God's truth over him. That the Spirit gave them some sort impressed upon them. Some We don't know the content of the prophecies. We don't know, but they were promises of God's faithfulness, promises of God's strength, but promises of God uh, that he that Timothy would be able, by God's grace, to execute the ministry that was being given to him. And this is why we continue to ordain ministers of the gospel. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have been ordained as deacons where they laid hands on you. I remember at my ordination to the gospel ministry, right? I, I have a, a if you've been to my office, one, I know one, I know all the all the things on the wall are crooked. They're to, it's to bother you OCD people. I do it on purpose. I just nudge it off and uh, not really. It just happens. I guess the I'll blame it on the earthquakes, but it's just it just happens. But right in the middle is a uh, my ordination certificate. And on it, there's, a, you know, the, the stuff about I was ordained on this date at this church and yada, yada. Uh, but on the side, there are all these names of the men who are on my ordination council. Uh, the first one was my grandfather, George Alexander Jones, not to be conf- confused with the, uh, uh, the song, the, the country singer. But he, he, he wanted to. Str- anyway, uh, there's, I'm not going to tell that story. Uh, it began with my, my grandfather. And it goes down all through the remembers. So it was at my, my first church, my previous church, Pine View Baptist Church. And uh, I was ordained on, on the, the 66 years to the day after my grandfather was ordained on February. 20, I was ordained on February 24th, 2010. He was ordained on February 24th, 1944. Uh, and from there, he entered into the chaplaincy in the, at the later stages of World War II. And I and I went to a little country church in Blythewood, uh, but he so uh, but those men, they examined me, they questioned me, they uh, grilled me about doctrine, about scripture, about my life. Uh, and then at the at the actual ordination service, they with other people uh, came and laid their hands on me. Now, I can't say that anyone had ecstatic utterances, but but that people spoke truth over me. They prayed truth of God. They prayed the truths of God back to God. They, they, they asked God for faithfulness and for strength. And it was a, uh, and I, I remember those days. I remember, not that, I remember that day. Um, and I look at that certificate at least weekly. And one thing that has struck me most recently, and I mentioned this to the group on Wednesday night, uh, is that just two weeks ago, I went to the, uh, the memorial service of another one of the men who was on that list that he had gone on and entered into his reward before the Lord Jesus. Uh, and, uh, and there's only, I think, uh, two out of like 11 that are still with us. You know, all, everybody else has gone on to glory. And I told the group on Wednesday night that every, with, with each passing, it feels like the baton in my hand gets a little bit heavier. But at some point, the, the young buck isn't the young buck anymore. And so that whereas, you know, I used to look to some of these men for the, the battles that they fought, for the, the, the stands of conviction that they had to take behind their pulpits. And I begin to realize, and I've been doing this 12 years, so I should, I'm just sort of dense sometimes, that, that I have my own stands. And I have my own battles. And our church has our own stands. And our own battles. 
Because God did not call us to wage the gospel warfare in another age, in another place. But he called us to do it here and now. To stand up, stand up for Jesus. I leaned over to Sarah Beth and said that was the, my, first, uh, my first solo I sang at First Baptist Irmo. I was in high school on a youth Sunday. And I literally sat, sang the whole time like this. I was so nervous. Um, but to take our stand upon the truths of God. And to recognize that it is the truths of God, the prophecies that are applied to our lives, the the promises that are appropriated in faith, the truths that God has communicated to us, that is what must fuel our warfare. So yes, you are in the midst of a fierce battle, but it is not a battle that is waged according to the ways of the world. It is a battle that is waged as we look at the Lord Jesus and we see his life and we see his example. And then we see the lives and the examples of the apostles. And it was lived by word, prayer, faith. We don't take up the implements of the world's warfare. We take up the implements of the word. And of faith. Of surrender. And of a good conscience. That by them you may wage the good warfare. At the end of the book, in in chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy to to fight the good fight of faith. And then he references himself in 2 Timothy, Timothy saying that he himself has fought the good fight. He's he's run the race. That that by by the time that 2 Timothy comes, Paul knows that he's about to die. And just to give you a sense of how, how the apostles waged the good warfare... Do you know what happens? Paul wasn't laying in bed sick, believing he was going to die. Do you know what happened to the Apostle Paul? How did he die? Was it a vol- just voluntary or involuntary? Right? His life was taken from him as his head was removed from his body. And he was delighted for, you know, he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He was ready to lay down his life at any moment for decades. He did ministry that way. And what I want you to see is that you, even though you might not be a pastor, you might not be a deacon, Sunday school leader, you, you, might, you might just be doing some, something that you think nobody sees. But dear one, you have a fight to fight, and it is a fight that we must fight individually and a fight that we must fight together. And it is to take up the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make sure this world knows it and sees it. The world must know it through what we say. That there is a content to the faith once handed down to the saints. We are not at liberty to mutilate the faith to fit our present day. We are not at liberty to redefine God as it suits our culture. We are not at liberty to redefine humanity, men and women, as it suits our culture. There is a faith. And there is an exclusivity attributed to Jesus that we cannot corrupt. Do you know what I mean? That there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. 
That is incredibly offensive in our day where religious pluralism reigns, moral relativism reigns. And for you to say, no, there's only one way for you to be right before God. There's only one right way to live. And it's in surrendered faith to the Lord Jesus. There is no other path. There's only one way up the mountain. And if you're not convinced about that, then you're not going to be convincing to your unconvinced neighbor. If right now you're saying, ah, Jacob, but I have this, my cousin is such a sweet person. They're so kind to me. And even though they have a, you could make, they're Buddhist. They're a Zen Buddhist or some other variation of Buddhist. Listen, I'm not saying that lost people are all of them like just super mean and ugly and violent. But you can be super, super nice and lost. There is a false gospel of kindness. So for you to wage war, the war that is outside of you, the the, the war of, of showing and speaking the life of Jesus, you've got to wage war in your own heart. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, that that if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That there has to be an interior war, a war of faith in in your body, in your mind, in your soul, taking up with the spirit, saying, I'm going to believe what God says. I'm going to spend more time with God than I am with the world. That I'm going to be content to sit at Jesus' feet. And to listen what he says in his word. That I'm going to pray for the spirit to, to impress his truths upon my heart. Because I, I fear there are too many in here and in other churches that are more discipled by social media than they are by Jesus Christ in the church. And all it takes is he starts scrolling on that thing and all it's, it's, it's an enrage factor, right? Oh, I can't believe that school district in Wyoming did that. I can't believe that governor over there in California did that, right? He's crazy. But why did he do that? And you just get all hot and bothered. And you feel like you've accomplished something by getting all hot and bothered. But you remember the fruit of the spirit? What? Love, joy, peace. Are any of those things being cultivated that way? You have to wage the war in yourself with the spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, putting to death sin, that there are things that remain in us that should be put to death, that we are ever growing. We're we're always in progress process that the Lord is is shaving away the parts that shouldn't be there. He's he's pulling up the weeds of our souls and he's planting good gospel trees in our hearts that good fruit might be born for his glory in us. But when we will not tend our hearts or as the Solomon says in Proverbs chapter four, that you keep watch over your heart for from it spring the fountains of life. But if you will not keep watch over your heart, don't be surprised when briars and whatever the other unpleasant nettles, poison ivy, 
you know, push, push the imagery. When things that shouldn't be there grow there. And then no wonder, no wonder it's hard for you to engage in the work that the Lord has for you. No wonder it's, it's hard to wake up to go to church. It's like, that's, that's like ring one, rung one down here, guys. No wonder we're not keeping our hearts before the Lord. We're not waging the war here because we have to wage the war here so that we can step out in faith and in boldness to show up and to be vulnerable with other Christians. To say, this is where I am. Would you pray for me? It takes the Lord doing a work in us just to simply to be about the Lord's business for us. And if you are not convinced of the gospel of Jesus, again, I'll say it. You won't be convincing to your unconvinced neighbor or your unconvinced spouse or your unconvinced children, your unconvinced culture. No wonder our culture so often so many look down with degradation upon the church because the church looks very little than little different than the world so often. And what that should lead us to is not anger with them, but it should lead us to a brokenness of repentance where we lament that we have grown too worldly to be of any heavenly good. Wage the good warfare. What Paul primarily is talking to Timothy about is that you have a work to do in that church in Ephesus, Timothy. That there are people who have arisen, who are, they've abandoned the faith. But I want you to notice the mechanics of apostasy. So wage the warfare in yourself so that you can wage the warfare against darkness in the world around us, sharing the gospel, living the gospel, living in the light of Christ, but wage the warfare in your heart so that you can wage the warfare in the church. Some of y'all are like, wait a minute. And I want you to notice the, again, the mechanics of apostasy. The mechanics of apostasy. This is how Paul, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to wage the good warfare. He says, by holding faith and a good conscience. I've already talked about faith, right? That if there is a, an objective, like by objective, I mean it's external to us. There is a, a faith that is handed down to us. There is a content about who God is. That he is three, three persons and one God. One and three, three and one. That there's Jesus, 100% God and 100% man. That there is the substitutionary death of Jesus. That, that there are, there, there's a spirit that has been given to the church. To every person that believes. Right. So that there's that there there are content matters here that God is the one who's made the heavens and the earth begin at verse one of the Bible. Those are objective realities, but a good conscience is a subjective. It is an internal thing. A good conscience is that voice within you that communicates to you. Yes, I'm walking with God. Yes, I'm obeying God. As elsewhere in the scriptures, it talks about that our spirit is giving witness with his spirit that we are children of God. That is the function of the conscience. And the conscience, that voice in you that says, I'm walking with God, or maybe right now is telling you that you're not walking with God. 
If you're not walking with God, there's, there's something there inhibiting your relationship with the Lord. There is some hidden sin that needs to be drawn out of the well. There's some old resentment that you have not extended forgiveness. There's an old wound that you've just sort of paved over without really dealing with. It's festering underneath the surface. And you've not walked in the light of the Lord. And some of you right now, your conscience is communicating that to you. That there is a hidden sin that you need to repent of today. There's a bitterness, there's a resentment, there's a greed, there's a covetousness, there's lust, pornography, things that are down deep that you want to keep hidden. And I'm not telling you to jump up and start shouting your sins in this place unless the Spirit of God does it. But I'm telling you to continue to tamp down your conscience will put you in dangerous spiritual waters. That your secret is not worth your soul. So the thing I'm telling you to do is to repent. To go to God and to repent. And to say, Lord, I've been walking in this way. I know it is wrong. I've been harboring anger towards this person. I know it is wrong. I've been living secretly, believing nobody sees this about me, but I know you see, and my conscience right now is telling me that I have not waged the good warfare in my own heart. Because, dear one, this is the mechanics of apostasy. People fall away, not because they have, usually, 99% of the time, not because they have intellectually been convinced that the gospel is not true. People fall away because they begin to live at distance between what they say they believe and what they actually do. This is how people fall away. Timothy, hold the faith. White knuckle the truths once handed down to you that this is the way of salvation. This is what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is where the world is going. Believe it. Preach it. Do not corrupt it. Hold on to it, but hold on to your conscience. Look after your life. He says this again and again to Timothy. We'll get there. Keep watch over yourself and over what you're teaching. And it'll be salvation for you and your hearers. He says later to Timothy. Watch what you believe, but watch how you live. And invite even right now, invite God's spirit to say, what do you need to say through my conscience? What needs to change in my life? Because notice, Timothy, hold on to these things, but by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. That is a singular reference. It's not by rejecting these, some translations mess this up. It's not by rejecting these things, faith and good conscience, but it's by rejecting this one thing, a good conscience. By rejecting a good conscience, these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, have shipwrecked the faith. They've shipwrecked their faith. They became too accustomed to living a certain way in the shadows. 
by indulging their addictions and indulging their sin without ever being broken over it because it broke the body of the Lord Jesus. And they still claimed Jesus. Do you not see? This is where I was before the Lord saved me. This is where I was. Growing up in the church, golden boy in the church, going on mission trips in the church, doing all these things, yada, yada, yada. And all the while, this is where I lived. And I, and I have no idea how prevalent this is in the church, but I know it's everywhere. But if this is your life, if there's too much distance between what you profess to believe in Jesus and the way that you actually live. I'm not talking that you have to be perfect or sinless or if you somehow like you, you got mad at a driver this week that you're, you're dangerous at a, of apostasy. But this is habitual, unrelenting, unrepented of, not remorsed over, loved sin more than Jesus. Where is it? And I'll tell you this, we can, we can reprogramize our whole church. We could do all sorts of different things. We could have Sunday school. We could have community groups. We could have worship. We could have men's, women, men's ministry, women's ministry, mercy ministry. We could have ministries going out of our ears. But if we have people who are living at distance for what they believe, God will never pour out revival upon us. He will never awaken us. We will never reach the world for Christ. And we will be a bunch of people that end up shipwrecked on the shores of our own sin. And by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. These men once were leaders. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they once were leaders and helpers and they were a part of the church. And what happens is that as they grew more and more in love with their sin, eventually they began to corrupt the faith in order to justify their lives. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Hymenaeus began to, to, to violate that word reject, right? When it says uh, in verse 19 of chapter 1 where we are, by rejecting a good conscience, it is a violent pressing aside is that word in Greek. They're violently pressing down a good conscience. And as they do that, it, the tension grows. And as the tension grows, one thing's got to give or another. Either you've got to repent of the sin that you're living in and come back to the faith that you're professing or you're going to begin corrupting the faith that you're professing to justify the sin that you love. And Hymenaeus chose the latter. He began corrupting the truths that were once handed down to the saints to justify his living. And so one who was once an advocate and a supporter of Timothy and Paul's ministry in in the church turned and become one who opposed them. And do not be surprised when the same happens in the church. And we could tell tale if we had the time. And one day God will. All that is done in the secret will come to the light. That's not ominous now. It's days gone by. 
But hear about Alexander. This is probably, probably the same guy. It might not be the same guy, but it's probably the same guy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Hymenaeus and Alexander, who once were proponents and advocates of the gospel ministry, at least at the start, at least had the appearance of it. They had the appearance of grace. They had the appearance of, of believing upon the name of the Lord Jesus. They had the appearance of being a part of the church. But something happened as they tried to tamp down the useful tool that God had given in a conscience. They began to violently reject that. And as they did so, they corrupted the faith and came came full-fledged enemies against the gospel. This is the warning. You're amidst the warfare. The warfare is waging in your own heart. The warfare is waging in our own church. And the warfare is waging in the world around us. The tools of our warfare remain the same. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. It is the word of God. It is prayer. It is the spirit of God that this is how we wage war in our hearts, in this church and in the world. But if you will not yield to what the spirit says when he convicts you of sin and you refuse to repent, you refuse to lay it down. When one day you might be at odds with the God you claim to follow. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. They've crashed upon the rocks. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And I want you to hear this warning, and I'm saying it over and over again. Really, the the essence of this is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Well, you're, you're putting, you know, hypocrisy, you're putting on a face. And all the while, there's this stuff. There's this sin, there's this anger, there's this bitterness, there's this jealousy, there's this judgmentalism, there's this legalism, there's what all the things that fill up this. And if you're living there, I'm not talking about like you, we all trip and stumble and everything, but you're just swimming in it. And then you come in here and say, praise God from whom you're like, oh, yeah, God's awesome. And then you come back and you go back to your warm, cozy blanket of sin during the week. This is for you. Because it might, you might not feel like it. You might feel like you're okay. But as you've tamped down your conscience, your conscience will grow seared. And it will grow hardened. And that's a prayer, perilous place to be. Because then there will be no voice telling you this is the way. Walk in it. And you will continue to walk over, over, over until you walk off the edge into an eternity away from God. Hear the warning. Because these men began walking. We know that they ended up opponents. We don't know the end of the story. Hear the end of verse 20. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What does that mean? That they've been kicked out of the church. They go from the kingdom of Christ into the domain of darkness. 
so that by God's grace, they might learn what it is to be apart from God. Dear ones, there is a play, time and a place for the discipline of the church. The discipline of the church, this is a sermon that I can't get into the rest of this. But there's a time and a place for the church holding you accountable. And usually the church holding you accountable starts in minuscule, unseen ways that nobody else knows. But sometimes, sometimes things have to come up. Go read Matthew 18 where Jesus talks about when someone sins against you, go to them, bring somebody with them. And eventually if they don't hear anybody, bring it to the church. Bring it to the church so the church can go to them. And if they refuse to listen to the church, then the church must vote and to send them out and treat them like an unbeliever. But the point of the discipline, yes, it's for the purity of the church, but it's so that they would learn not to blaspheme. It's so that they would repent of their sins and come back to Christ. It's a hard, and you might feel harsh, measure but it's one for the good of the church and for the good of the person so i came to to invite you into the war there is no neutrality here you're in it the adversary's after you your flesh is after you the world is after you all of them to pull you away from christ and the spirit of god has been given to you believer to secure you and to seal you for the inheritance that is the saints in the day of glory will you wage the war in your heart by god's grace through the spirit will you lay down the sin will you repent of the thing that you if there's something there lay it before the lord and ask him to rend your heart to tear you open about it and to put you back together by the gospel that Jesus is the friend of sinners and that for that thing, whatever that thing is that you're keeping back here, Jesus's blood covers that too. You're not saved by your repentance. Your repentance clings to the one who saves you, Jesus Christ. So lay it down and believe that Jesus died for you. Free you from that so that you can wage the war, that you can live the life following Christ. We must look after the church. We must be diligent about what is being preached, about what is being taught, what you're listening to. In this information age, you are bombarded with good things and garbage. What books are you reading? What YouTube channels are you subscribed to? What blogs are you reading? Who are you following on social media? Are they telling you the truth? Test the spirits, dear ones. Be like Bereans and always go back to the word. Bring it back to the Bible. What has God said? Do not be easily swayed. For there are many who come appearing like an angel of light and they would pull you away. And finally, we must wage the war in loving compassion to take the stand of Jesus into this world so that those who are far from God may hear and see him today. Be convinced that Jesus saves sinners so that when you go out, you say, this is the only way. He is the only savior. Trust him. And let me tell you about what he has done for me. Some of you have never clung to Christ. You've never trusted in Jesus. You never surrendered your life. Would today be that day? 
There's no other way, dear one. You know it in your heart right now. The Spirit of God is giving an attestation. He's attesting to the truth of these words. There's no other way except in Christ and Christ alone. Would you come to Him in faith? Trust Him to save you, not yourself. Christian, if there is a broadening gap between your profession of faith and what you're actually living, do not leave here that way. Repent of this garbage and take in the pure water of the fountain of Christ. Have new life, have revived life, have refreshed life through repentance. And consider who it is that needs to hear of the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...